Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV Journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's Book Talks episode is the second in a two-part series on the topic of financing terrorism. Hosted by Beatrice de Graaf, editor at TPV and a historian at Utrecht University, she will conclude the series by interviewing Marike de Goede on her recent publication, Finance and Security Infrastructures, and her extensive publications on this subject. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome everyone by the TPV podcast episode on counterterrorism, terrorism financing. This is the second of a two-part series on this subject. And in our first issue, we had Jessica Davis with us, an international expert on terrorism and illicit financing, who worked as an intelligence analysis uh, analyst within the Canadian military. And uh, she recently published her very comprehensive and thoughtful book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. Today, we continue our conversation on this topic with Professor Marike de Goede. Professor de Goede has published extensively on this topic. And uh, she wrote a book, a seminal book in 2012, which was called Speculative Security. And she continued to work since then. She explored the topic more broadly. She discussed counterterrorism financing in the context of its legality, secrecy and tracking finance. Recently, in the recent years, she published a number of very influential articles on counterterrorism financial infrastructure, on counterterrorism finance as an assemblage, and also on counterterrorism financing as an instrument in terrorism trials. So, because I know her for a very long time, I will address her by her first name, Marika. Marika, very happy to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks, Beatrice, for the invite. So please, perhaps, could you explain to us and to the audience what your work is about? Yes, I can try. That's a very broad <laughs> question. Um, perhaps it's useful to say a few words about how I became interested in the topic of terrorism financing, um, which started really uh, at the moment of 9-11 and in the aftermath of 9-11, when I had just finished my PhD research. Uh, and my PhD was all about... Uh, uh, historical, moral, juridical distinctions between so-called normal speculation uh, and illegitimate uh, financial practices and illegitimate financial histories. And it struck me in the aftermath of 9-11 how much of the discourse around terrorism financing and pursuing terrorism financing was also drawing discursive boundaries between so-called areas and um uh, spaces of normal finance and uh, illicit finance uh, and underground networks, especially uh, at that time around um, uh, issues like Havala, which was very much uh, criminalized in, in the post-9-11 discourse. 
But of course, if you delve into what Havala is and what it does, uh, the story is much more complicated and drawing the boundary between normal finance and illicit finance uh, becomes much more complicated. So that's how I became interested in the broad issue of terrorism financing. And I would say that in the past almost 20 years, I have taken different approaches to trying to understand and analyze terrorism financing, including some policy reports, which try to map the history of how particular attacks have been financed, but also lots of critical work around the kind of security um, practices and security effects of uh, counterterrorism financing and the impact of new law and regulation and criminal cases around terrorism financing. Yes, perhaps it's good to insert here that you're a professor of political science, that you work with cultural studies as well. And uh, as opposed to a first guest who gained her experience in the practice of doing financial intelligence, you have been a professor of political science ever since. You were a principal investigator of a, re a huge research project, Follow the Money, from Transaction to Trial. And you have developed, not just yourself, but also people working with you, a very specific perspective on terrorism financing. Perhaps you could explain us a little bit um, how you operate and how, for example, uh, your approach differs from an approach as that of Jessica Davis, who worked as an intelligence analyst. Mm -hmm. So what do you do differently in studying mm -hmm. this? Yeah, I think what, what's been distinct about our work uh, is that we always problematize this category of terrorism financing. So instead of taking it as a given that it is out there, that we can study this objectively, we've always raised questions about how is it defined? How is it delineated? How is this uh, sort of space of abnormal financing uh, distinguished from normal practices of finance, who draws those boundaries, how are they contested? Uh, so I would say that that's been a um, you know a, a general thread throughout the work. Uh, in Project Follow, uh, called uh, uh, following uh, the transaction from transaction to trial, uh, what we the starting point of that project, which we've done five uh, for the past five years together with a, a team in Amsterdam, and I will talk a little bit about their work as well as we as we go on. Uh, but the starting point for that project was that we really need to have a look at what happens in practice when institutions uh, uh, say that they are countering the financing of terrorism. So there's lots of new law and regulation at the national level, also at the transnational level. But the starting point for Follow was to uh, was was um, was the starting point that in order to know what's happening in counterterrorism financing, you really need to look at practices. So we try to follow the um, the suspicious transaction. Uh, how does a, a suspicious transaction arise? How is it defined? How is it? Um, carved off from normal transactions, uh, how is it reported, how is it shared, um, how is it uh, acted upon by police, by security services, how does it eventually become uh, evidence uh, in, uh, in a trial before a court of law. So the idea was really to follow the suspicious transaction in practice and, and see what it does and see how it, um, how it does different things in different institutional environments. And applying this method, following the money, following the transaction, better put, um, how is this then exactly different from how, for example, an intelligence analyst like Jessica Davis follows transactions? 
Well, I haven't uh, yet been able to listen to her podcast that you did, so I'm not exactly sure how um, how she does it. Um, but I think partly um, the the theme of follow or the project name follow is also challenging this idea of following the money and how that can sort of, because there's very much in counterterrorism financing this assumption that following a transaction or following the money uh, will give you an unmitigated truth about what the terrorists are doing. Um, whereas what we've tried to do is to uh, each time focus on the challenges in practice. Why is this difficult? What is happening? How are professionals also making judgment about the normal and the abnormal? What are the societal effects? Um, how is this, um, um, yeah, how are these decisions political? So I think instead of sort of assuming that following the money can be done successfully, through hard work. I'm sure that financial intelligence analysts um, also don't find it easy. It's it's a puzzle. Um, but uh, instead of sort of assuming that this can be done um, successfully uh, to provide an unmitigated picture of what the terror is doing, we have tried to focus on how each of those decisions uh, in sort of identifying transactions as suspicious in um, uh, analyzing them in the space of the financial intelligence unit, in the way they work through court cases, how each of those decisions and practices uh, face uh, really huge challenges in practice and how uh, working with those challenges involves uh, everyday, mundane, political decisions that, that have societal effects. Mm -hmm. We will discuss one of those very concrete and um, uh, evenimental cases in a minute, the Jihadi Jack case on which you wrote and you also did field work on. But um, lingering a bit on your very specific approach, which you developed and honed over the past years, but it sort of is already laid out in your book, Speculative Security, the Politics of Pursuing Terrorist Monies. And um, the great thing about that book is, is that you indeed work hard to explain to your readers that there is a specific security logic. And the security logic is not just follow the money and find the perpetrator. It's not an, it is, it's, it's a preemptive logic. It's a risk-oriented logic. It's a speculative logic. Mm -hmm. But could you explain to us what you actually meant with that mm -hmm. and why it's important to understand mm -hmm. that? Yeah, because what what happens really when you start to pursue fi uh, the financing of terrorism, the way I saw it happen at least nine, after 9-11, uh, and I argue this in speculative security, is that pursuing the financing of terrorism widens the space and the time of security. So it widens the scope uh, of security practices. It makes it possible to bring into security view uh, people who are associated uh, with terrorists and suspected terrorists, so not immediately the attackers or the plotters, but people around them, people who are thought to be facilitating or helping or supporting in any way, can be sometimes very tenuous ways. Um, uh, so it brings into view that that wider um, environment, let's say, to security authorities. It makes it also amenable to intervention for security authorities and it uh, broadens, um, so that's how it broadens the space of security. And I argue that pursuing terrorism financing broadens the time of security in the sense that um, it is possible to intervene 
um, earlier uh, in early stages of suspected and potential attacks. So not just when the weapons are bought, not just when the plans are drawn up, not just when the target is selected, but even in a much earlier stage when um, uh, when uh, ideas are potentially uh, made, um, you know, also in our joint work, Beatrice, uh, a while ago, uh, but we started writing on this uh, in our article in International Political Sociology, uh, where we also looked at criminal trials uh, that happen much in advance of actual terrorist violence, uh, and where we looked at cases, for example, where somebody, for example, borrows a book from the library, but you can borrow a book from the library with terrorist intent, and that makes it a criminal act in the present. Um, so terrorism financing and criminalizing terrorism financing has a similar effect of making um, um, making security intervention, sometimes prosecution, able much in advance to actual plotting, uh, let alone execution of an attack. And that's what we've also seen in some criminal cases uh, mm -hmm. of, um, for terrorism financing in recent years. You recently published on this with um, a PhD or a postdoc of yours, uh, Tasnim Anwar, also part of your project Follow. Uh, and the article is titled From Contestation to Conviction, Terrorism Expertise Before the Courts in Law and Society, in which you actually unpack uh, terrorism financing trials and show how financial intelligence is being used. Could you walk us through one of those cases and tell us why this bothered you so much? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we did in follow, as I explained earlier, is we followed the suspicious transaction. So we had a team of researchers, which was really great. I was really privileged to work with this team. Uh, and we started in the bank. Uh, uh, Esme Bosma, who is just finishing her PhD, uh, did, uh, did work inside the bank to sort of see how do banks deal with this? How do banks identify and carve out suspicious transactions? Then Peter Lagerwaard uh, looked at financial intelligence units uh, to sort of follow up and to see what do financial intelligence units do with the bank's reports? How do they follow up research? Uh, how do they share it with uh, police prosecution? And then Tasnim Anwar, uh, who's uh, also just finishing uh, her PhD, she's just about to submit her manuscript to the committee, so that's really great. Um, she looked at court cases and she looked at how um, uh, suspicious financial transactions eventually sometimes, because obviously this doesn't happen very often um, and it doesn't happen to the majority of suspicious transactions reports, but sometimes and increasingly so, we see criminal trials for the financing of terrorism. So that's what Tasneem uh, Anwar focused on. She also has a number of publications, including uh, in uh, an article in International Political Sociology and one uh, coming out with Security Dialogue. And she and I together did a work around um, the so-called uh, Jihadi Jack uh, case in the UK, which was one of the biggest uh, terrorism financing trials uh, in the uh, in the UK, where uh, the parents uh, of Jack Letts, uh, who had uh, traveled to Syria, um, and allegedly he was working with Islamic State, um, though it never became fully clear before the court uh, what exactly he did in Syria. And his parents had sent him off the top of my head, I think around 1,100 pounds uh, to try to support him and try to, to try to help him uh, get out of Syria. During uh, the time of the caliphate, so between 2014 and 16 or 17? Um, 
what were what exactly was um, the timeline on it? A, a lot of the uh, a lot of the trial was around, was about the timeline. Um, they had sent him the money when he when he was there, right? Um, yeah. And um, they were prosecuted for the financing of terrorism. And the parents, the parents, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, because um, the the son uh, he he is still in in a in a Kurdish camp uh, a Kurdish uh, guarded camp um, uh, in northern Syria I think um, but the parents were prosecuted and that became a huge case so I thought it was a fascinating case uh, because it really tests the limits of law it really asked this question uh, when uh, w- what is criminal culpability in relation to terrorism financing? These parents did not hold terrorist sympathies. Um, they um, they uh, said that they sent money to support uh, their son to leave the area. They sent him money for some health issues like new glasses. Um, so the question is, I, I think it's a very fascinating case because it really uh, challenges fundamental legal categories like the mens rea. You know, what is the criminal criminal intent and what kind of criminal intent has to be proven uh, for, um, you know, a sender of money to be found guilty. Uh, Also, it has uh, lots of challenges around this question of evidence of what happened to the money. So was it even necessary for the court to to, to prove that money sent to the son uh, was not used for glasses but was used for something else? Or uh, did the court hold that that was irrelevant to the trial? It's just a blanket crime if you wire money into ter- terrorist territory. Yes, exactly. It mm-hmm. is a blanket. Tr- and actually, the actually in the Netherlands, they tried to make it a blanket crime to wire money to a specific territory that was unsuccessful uh, as, as a legal. Um, it was a legal proposal uh, and it didn't go through. Um, but the courts, many court cases have actually helped that. So uh, the court does not have to prove what actually happened with the money. Was it used to buy food or glass it, or was it used to make bombs? Uh, but courts in the UK, also in the Netherlands, also um, in Germany, France, uh, have held that it's not necessary to show what happened to the money, but that the fact that it was uh, sent to IS-held territories makes uh, the sending of it a a criminal act by definition. Because you are directly or indirectly supporting a terrorist organization. Uh, Yes. Is that that the argument? That's the argument. And the argument is that um, uh, regardless of how little uh, that money is and regardless of what the intent of the sender is, uh, that is a criminal act, uh, regardless of what happened with the money. Jessica Davis is not here, unfortunately, but uh, would I have asked her, she would have made the distinction between that indeed it can be very little money, but every nip and bit of money is needed for terrorist organizations to thrive and survive. So an intelligence analyst would perhaps argue that this is a chain of um, financing a terrorist organization where the parents, perhaps unwittingly, but still supported it. So she would be able, uh, perhaps not she, but a a person like her, an intelligence analyst like her, would be able to trace money streams like this and they can adapt, can't they? And say, well, yes, this is indeed a way and a means of supporting a terrorist organization. So what exactly is your critique here? Well, my critique, I guess, is on several points. So I wouldn't necessarily say that that argument is wrong. Uh, but I would say uh, a couple of things. Um, first, um, 
There is a whole question around what is a terrorist organization and how do we decide uh, and 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 define um, certain organizations or certain areas as terrorist and others not. Um, but there's also a huge question around um, is this really success then eventually in the war on terrorism financing? So the fact that after a huge trial, which took uh, actually two years, uh, I don't know how much it cost eventually, but after a huge trial... You, you, uh, you wrote for yourself in your article, I have it for me, sorry, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's seven million pounds as a cost in the, the end. Yes, that's what the Guardian reported. So yeah. seven million pounds. And it took nearly two years because a, a, a point of law went to the UK Supreme Court. And that's why it, it took such a long time. It was fascinating, I mean, from a legal point of view. Uh, but is this then eventually success? If you think about all the regulatory effort, if you think about all the lawmaking, is the fact that we can uh, convict uh, these parents for sending 1100 pounds, is that, you know, the big success in counterterrorism financing? where you talk about parents and it's not just these UK parents because they they got more media attention than others they were white middle class parents we've seen uh, many other cases of uh, Muslim parents who have nearly not had any uh, of this media attention but where we also see cases of parents who do not hold uh, terrorist ideological motivations and who are sending money to support uh, their children or um, uh, or, or wanting to help or support their children. So is this then the big success in the war on terrorism financing that we managed to uh, convict parents uh, for sending a few hundred euros or a few hundred pounds? Uh, so that, that I think is a larger question that we should ask. Uh, and another question that we should ask, I think has nothing or has very little to do with terrorism financing itself, but has to do with the legal changes that are made possible through such trials. And the fact that uh, criminal culpability is moved in advance uh, of uh, a violent act, uh, the fact that the court does not have to uh, investigate or show or demonstrate or present evidence as to what happened to the money uh, in um, in the end, um, that uh, really poses challenges to um, to the rule of law as we know it. And I think that partly what I found fascinating about terrorism financing as a topic is that it functions as, as a kind of icebreaker in a way for fostering changes in security practices and changes in legal practices um, that perhaps otherwise would have been unthinkable. One of the quotes uh, from your work uh, is from the chapter for on a, um, uh, out of a handbook on finance and security infrastructures. And the quote reads as follows, it's from you. After 9-11, the use of targeted sanctions has intensified. They have increasingly become directed preemptively against individuals and groups rather than being a form of post-crime punishment at the level of states. Is this one of the risks and the changes to the legal mm -hmm. system that you're talking about? Yes, though this is about uh, this this quote is about targeted sanctions, which is a slightly uh, different um, uh, logic than criminal trials. So criminal trials are are really based on on national law. They come before the national criminal courts. Um, targeted sanctions, in a way, are pre-crime, so they never normally come before a court. Uh, 
they are the kinds of interventions that states and international organizations do um, to try to target alleged uh, terrorists that they cannot necessarily uh, bring to trial. Um, so they, these people can be placed on sanctions lists, uh, which means that uh, it becomes impossible for them to bank uh, and to travel. Um, and so we've also done, not so much within Project Follow, uh, but in other parts of my work, uh, we've done a research into targeted sanctions and how they operate, um, uh, especially also together with Gavin Sullivan, who is now at the University of Edinburgh. We've looked at um, uh, how, how sanctions work and, and the problems around those. And there you see that targeted sanctions have become individualized. So, uh, And that's very much a post 9-11 development, uh, that individuals are named um, uh, and individuals are barred uh, from travel, barred from banking, um, and they can be named by states or by international organizations. Uh, and they don't really have a way of defending themselves. So one thing you could say about a criminal trial is that at least uh, you can come before court, you can mount your defense. And there's legal guarantees. There are legal guarantees, even though, you know, the law is shifting and, and widening. But with targeted sanctions, there is no, no court that hears your case or that hears your defense. So that's another preemptive logic that is uh, fascinating and also worrying. Is, is this also something that uh, I think you and others once called actuarial justice? Actuarial justice is, I think also, is that a term for Mariana Valverde? Yes. Um, yes. So uh, she's a wonderful criminologist uh, at the University of Toronto and has been an inspiration, I think, to um, uh, much of our work. And she was also a co-promoter um, of uh, Gavin Sullivan when he finished his PhD. And she... Um, I think actuarial justice is is precisely around the the way that risk uh, plays into these kind of legal and quasi legal decisions, where it becomes uh, increasingly possible to um, to intervene um, uh, to uh, to target uh, suspected individuals uh, based on on, on risk based assessment uh, and suspicions uh, rather than. Um, let's say, the standard of, of criminal evidence uh, that, that you would see in other domains of life. So actuarial justice with the case uh, and the trials that you mentioned before, uh, these are no exemptions anymore. You, you, you're identifying them as a pattern of how criminal law itself, so not just the um, public administration measures, the, 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 the sanction measures, but criminal law in itself is changing under the effect of the war on terror. Yes, in some ways uh, it is. And and I think uh, that's, that's precisely what fascinates me so much about uh, terrorism financing. You also see this in other domains, not just the legal domain, but for example, if you think about uh, the way in which transaction information is shared between uh, private institutions and, and public um, uh, actors, uh, there you also see new forms of information sharing um, where terrorism financing really functions as this kind of icebreaker where terrorism financing 
uh, and the fight against it um, is able to affect uh, changes uh, that perhaps would be uh, unthinkable in other areas. For example, now the way in which police proactively share names uh, of suspects with uh, banking institutions. That's also something that from privacy and legal protection uh, a point of view uh, has always been extremely controversial, but now in the domain of terrorism financing, it becomes possible. Um, so, so I think that that's what really fascinates me about terrorism financing, how it functions as this ground uh, for making these larger changes possible. As an historian, um, I'm, I'm reading your work with great fascination. And I'm always, uh, as an historian, looking for patterns of continuity and discontinuity. And what I found so um, interesting and also thought-provoking in your work that on the one hand, with the war on terror after 9-11, you identify and pinpoint, make explicit those changes, mm -hmm. the changes to the law, the changes to the system. On the other hand, and this is something that you also published recently in the Review of International Political Economy, it's an article on finance, security, infrastructures, mm -hmm. and there you argue that the financial infrastructures that are used, for example, also for countering terrorism finance, are, I quote you, profoundly political and rooted in long-term colonial histories. So could you tell us a little bit about, we've now discussed the changes, mm -hmm. the discontinuity, mm -hmm. but now here you argue, and this is a new building block, I would mm -hmm. say, in, in your work, your oeuvre, you're now arguing that it's actually part of a long-term colonial history. Well, coming from the history where there is this huge post-colonial debate uh, raging mm -hmm. on, mm -hmm. how do you exactly uh, mm -hmm. understand this? Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, thanks for that question. Um, what I do in that article, it was uh, published with a review of interna uh, international political economy in, in their blind spots uh, project. It's more of an essay than, you know, full-blown empirical article. Uh, and I think the question of 9-11 and newness remains a fascinating question on which you've also uh, recently given a lecture. I think people can still perhaps view it online, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, on the one hand, I, I do think that um, a post 9-11 counterterrorism is fundamentally different in, in, men, in some ways, and it is important to analyze those differences. Uh, on the other hand, of course, taking 9-11 as this kind of huge historical breaking point uh, also is very problematic uh, for many reasons, not least uh, that it uh, prioritizes or privileges uh, a certain disaster over others. Um, uh, so there's a lot to be said about, uh, about, about that precise question of taking 9-11 as a, as a turning point. Um, what I try to do in this article that was published in RIPE, there we look at uh, the way in which financial sanctions in a way become hardwired into international payment systems. Um, so uh, we can say a lot and a lot has been written about the legal and regulatory changes and the... the, uh, the perhaps, so very briefly to interrupt you for the audience at home, um, perhaps you could also briefly explain, give a summary what's the article about because you write mm -hmm. in that article mm -hmm. about the weaponization of SWIFT infrastructure and these are aspects of terrorism that are not necessarily well known to the larger public because they're so abstract and so yes. hidden from our side. So please, uh, sorry for interrupting you like this, but perhaps explain a little bit what it's all about and why SWIFT is the part of the argument that you're making here for pointing to the colonial histories. Exactly, yes, thanks. Um, uh 
Uh, and that's that's an important part of the story. So what you see as SWIFT, um, even though it seems uh, like a very technical payment infrastructure, uh, most uh, listeners will have heard of it uh, because most lister- listeners, if you have a bank account, you will normally have a SWIFT, uh, an IBAN number. And uh, SWIFT is, um, uh, is it's a private company, but it's basically uh, a financial communications uh, infrastructure that makes possible about 80% uh, of global uh, payment. So if you uh, send money abroad, um, you know, uh, 80% of those international payment transfers uh, would go via SWIFT. Um, and after 9-11, you see that the American government uh, tries to um, uh, analyze and, and capture data from SWIFT in order to Uh, well, capture this financial intelligence that I think uh, Jess Davis talked about last time uh, uh, to to have the the data to analyze uh, financial networks and and financial transactions. Um, uh, And, you know, there's a long story to be told about how SWIFT uh, became, um, let's say, a reluctant partner uh, in the fight against terrorism financing. Um, But what happened uh, in more recent years uh, is that SWIFT uh, really uh, came uh, was put under pressure by the United States and the European Union uh, to disconnect uh, certain banks, uh, primarily banks in Iran, uh, that uh, uh, were placed on sanctions lists. So instead of trying to um, uh, instead of trying to force compliance through rules and norms, uh, which had been the case previously. Uh, compliance with sanctions was literally hardwired into our financial infrastructures, right? So you could say, well, uh, countries and and banks either comply or or not uh, with these international sanctions. But once it became part of SWIFT and once literally it became impossible to render monies to Iran because of the disconnection in the SWIFT system, you don't have a choice anymore to comply or not to comply with the international rules and regulations. It just becomes impossible possible to send money to Iran. And this happened um, in the context of the negotiations of the joint nuclear agreement. Um, uh, I think off the top of my head, that was in 2012, though mm-hmm. I'm unlike a historian, I'm not very good with um, with uh, with numbers, uh, with uh, remembering uh, uh, the years. Um, but it happened in the uh, in in the face of the negotiation of the uh, GCPOA uh, that SWIFT was put under pressure to disconnect Iran. So the article is really about how uh, sanctions become wired into payment infrastructure. And then actually, if you start looking at these payment infrastructures and where they come from and how they operate, uh, I think it's really interesting to place those in a longer historical perspective where you actually see that the kind of hub and spoke to do with uh, uh, colonial structures uh, where certain um, European capitals uh, form a hub Uh, in relation to their former colonies. And you actually see that SWIFT, to some extent, still has that uh, that pattern. Um, So I try to place this this new term, let's say, in in the history of SWIFT into that longer um, historical uh, story. Could you 
please briefly elaborate a little bit more on that because that's really fascinating that you can see the patterns of colonial financial history, the banking houses of France and of uh, the UK and of the Netherlands, Sillum, Baring, Hope, the Rothschilds, who were indeed the partakers mm -hmm. and the caretakers of the large financial streams in the 19th century during the times of high expansionism and imperialism. So how how do you see that mirrored then in something like Swift, which, mm -hmm. which is a commercial enterprise, and um, I think it's Belgium. Yes, it's incorporated in Belgium, but it's um, uh, it, it's it has many partners uh, around the world. Um, so, but it's based in Belgium. I'm not saying that Swift itself is a colonial uh, enterprise uh, at all, but I am saying that um, uh, you can see those. Um, uh, colonial histories in present transaction patterns that has less to do with SWIFT and it has more to do with how international payment is done, how, um, you know, how a certain capital still functions as a kind of hub for, um, uh, for areas uh, in other parts of the world, often former colonies uh, that are to, to a large extent underbanked. Eh? So if you look at certain areas, mm -hmm. In the world, they are underbanked. It's much harder to remit money there. Financial services are much less present. Uh, that's also why Havala, coming back to the beginning of our story, but why Havala and these alternative remittance networks are much more important for certain parts of the world than others. It's partly because there, there are, are no whole banks, areas yeah. of the world that are uh, there are no banks and you can't just send money there, not even with SWIFT. Um, but in general, you know, when you mentioned the Rothschilds and the Bearings and those banking houses, um, you know, to take it a bit further away from the story of SWIFT, but I think there's a lot more work to be done around this relationship between financial histories, financial innovation, financial speculation, and the histories of colonialism and the role that they played and how that is still uh, present today. So how some of those uh, colonial uh, histories are still very much uh, in the present in the way that um, uh, financial transactions patterns uh, work, in the way that some areas are uh, better connected than others, um, uh, and so on. So coming back to our, um, well, thank you for the, 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 the great panorama uh, in, in which you also bring the history and the, the deep-rooted patterns of colonial history into the financing world. But coming back to terrorism financing today, um, should your work be read as a generic critique on counterterrorism counter-terrorism financing assemblages as such? Is it an addendum? It's complementary to that? What would you say to financial intelligence working, an analyst working in this area? I, I like to think that it is a, a generic critique of terrorism financing just because I think we don't problematize the notion of terrorism financing enough. And we always should ask who gets classified uh, as a potential terrorist financier and who does not. And we know, if, for example, if you look at right-wing terrorism, there is a little bit of attention now finally to the money flows of right-wing uh, white supremacist organizations. But if you look at the past 20 years, it's been almost only about a Muslim-affiliated jihadist uh, terrorist. And so it's been very biased. And we don't uh, ask the question enough about uh, what what this term makes possible. So I do think that my work and I my work is motivated by this uh, stance of critique. 
nevertheless, uh, we have taken the uh, the starting point of the follow project has also been that we have to take seriously the work of uh, financial practitioners, financial intelligence analysts. So we can't stand outside and judge and say what you do is wrong. We have to um, try to understand their life worlds and try to understand their everyday uh, dilemmas and, and challenges. And there's many people who work in this domain who are also genuinely motivated mm -hmm. by uh, doing good and, and doing well and providing security. So I don't want to stand outside and say that that's wrong. Uh, I want to understand uh, the life worlds and challenges of people who are working on this. And I also have seen that many people themselves uh, share certain um, worries, uh, for example, about the discriminatory effects that some yes. of these uh, rules and practices can have. And there are people who work with this um, in daily practice who also share those concerns, uh, except for people who work in this area. It's much harder to voice them publicly uh, than it is for an academic. So I also um, yeah, see, see a role for us there. Yes, that's also why I think that Jessica Davis' work is so important, because she has a leg in both fields and dares to speak out. Um, briefly following up on that, you mentioned right-wing extremism, and there's now some, some research being done that right-wing extremist terrorists finance themselves uh, through, for example, um, selling stuff on the internet, which is protected by freedom of speech and uh, first uh, amendment etc so you can you can just sell merchandise and whatever you like to finance your organization on the net um it's also said that they find that they invest in bitcoins for example um would you would you then make a case of broadening counterterrorism finance assemblages to right-wing terrorism or rather not at all? Well, I think that's a huge dilemma. And thankfully, I'm not the one who has to <laughs> <laughs> make decisions on that. I would say, yes, it needs to be broadened. Uh, but of course, with all the um, human rights implications and uh, accountability problems with uh, 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 countering terrorism financing, uh, we should also uh, remain um, aware of those. Um, so, so, so I do think it's a dilemma. So, and and I would say yes, it needs to be broadened, but nevertheless, uh, we still need to remain critical about these uh, instruments. Thank you. So, wrapping up this highly fascinating interview, what will you be working on in the near future? Will you continue this work on financial assemblages? Will you work on the chain of security again, on colonial history? And if you're not working on it yourself, where do you see work that needs to mm -hmm. be done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things uh, we will be working on a bit, and I'm doing this together with uh, my colleague Rocco Bellanova, is we're looking at the parallels between counterterrorism financing and uh, what's called content moderation, because I think both are examples where private actors are being placed in the front line of counterterrorism and where private actors are asked to basically make everyday judgments on what's normal, what's legal, what's illegal, what's suspicious, uh, the way that we now see that social media platforms have to uh, delete uh, terrorist contents. You also have new law uh, in the European Union, uh, the so-called terror law, uh, and even though there's huge differences between terrorism financing and content moderation, there's also the, these parallels of what happens when private companies become responsible for making these judgments, uh, what happens to due process, uh, and also how do public and private 
uh, partners cooperate. So we have a forthcoming article in Journal of Common Market Studies where we talk about the co-production of security between public and private. And we look specifically at content moderation and, and we draw that parallel. So, so that's one thing um, that we're doing. Um, there is, uh, in terms of... I'm, I'm, I remain fascinated with the legal cases. I think there's more work to be done around um, uh, terrorism financing criminal cases and especially the broader shifts in the legal space. How does this affect the rule of law? Um, uh, what do these cases tell us about uh, the general trends in, um, in the rule of law and democratic societies? Um, I see really interesting work done, perhaps just to mention the work of some colleagues. Um, I see interesting work done around proscription and the way in which sanctions and proscription uh, affect um, uh, the scope for peace negotiations, for example. So Sophie Huspislach, I'm not sure if I pronounce her name correctly, but she just has a new book with Manchester University Press called Proscribing Peace, actually, maybe for a future podcast. Yes. She yeah. could be... A very interesting uh, person to talk to. Uh, and the other area that I think we see really interesting research is around fintech and the role that um, increasingly sophisticated data mining and transaction analysis will play in the future in trying to identify and counter terrorism financing and how that has consequences for everyday banking practice, how those surveillance technologies are developing, how they can be challenged and, and critically analyzed. Um, and there, of course, Louisa Moore's work uh, remains uh, 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 really fascinating and, and topical and something to be uh, recommended. Well, thank you, Marika. This is um, enough to be discussed and be read for the coming years, I think, and with you and with others. Um, Marika de Goede, Professor of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam, was with us. She is the author of Speculative Security and of a number of um, fascinating articles and papers on finance, security, infrastructures and much more. Thank you again, Marika, for having been with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.